Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is anthropologist and author Dr Holly Walters, who joined me to talk about her work researching shallogram stones, sacred fossil ammonites found in a remote area of Himalayan Nepal. They are seen as direct expressions of the divine in the landscape, and objects very much with their own agency, making pilgrimages through time and space. And their veneration has been part of Buddhist and Hindu practice for over 2,000 years. Interestingly, the mystical nature of shallograms does not interfere with an interpretation of them as fossilised creatures, or their existence millions of years ago as living ammonites. They represent in microcosm the ability for something to have both meaning and explanation in balance, without one needing to supersede the other. In the interview, I talk more about this with Holly, along with a general discussion about shallogram stones themselves, and their history as sacred objects. Given their birthplaces in the Himalayas, we also talked a little about how the Yeti, and the supernatural in general, is understood and interpreted in that part of the world. Fascinating stuff indeed. Enjoy! Holly, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Before we talk about shallograms and what they are, what was it that led you to be looking for these objects and researching them in deepest Nepal? <laughs> yeah, that, so that story is, um, I think, very typical of a lot of anthropologists, which my answer is by accident, really. Um, I... I started my work in India in 2012, and I was actually researching something completely different. I was researching uh, the way in which deity care worked in certain Hindu temples. And basically, it was about six months into that project when I first encountered a group of people who, instead of having these deities, had these black fossil stones instead. And that's basically how it started if you can believe that. So, yeah, so when you first encountered them, were they things that you sort of knew of but hadn't researched directly or were they a, a total surprise? No, they were actually a complete surprise. Um, so when I, when I first encountered them, I asked someone that I was working with, you know, so what's with the black fossil stones? And that was the very first time I had actually heard the word shalagram stone. Um, and that kind of surprised me. I had been studying Hinduism by that point for five or six years, and this was not a word that I had ever heard. This was not an object I'd ever encountered before. And so at the time, my, my, that particular project ended, and I went back to my university, as I was a PhD student at the time, and figured, you know, I'll go to the South Asian Studies Department, I'll go to our, our Hinduism professors, and certainly someone is going to know what these things are, but I didn't. Um, and in fact, mostly the response that I got from the people that I was working with at my university was sort of like, you know, I, I think my grandparents had one when I was a kid, but that's all I really know about them. And, you know, maybe you'll just have to go and see if there's a book about it. 
So that was my second, that was my second idea. Uh, I figured, you know, someone's written a book about these. Someone must have studied these before. Went to the library and the answer was no. Um, there was absolutely nothing available about them. Uh, there were only two books in existence that even talked about them, both of which were only available in South Asia. And so I went back to my university PhD committee told them the whole story. I'm like, I, you know, I've encountered these, these fossil ammonite stones. Clearly they've got this kind of significance, but I can't find anything else about them. And their response to me was, well, I guess we know what your project is going to be about. <laughs> so at that point, what were the, what were the next steps for you? Just get back over there and, 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 and ask the locals more questions. So at that point, my, my next step was um, to sort of start back where I'd started, which was in northern India, and going back and kind of trying to reimagine this project. But a lot of it had to do with what kind of access I was going to have, who was going to be willing to talk to me, who could I work with. I had already built a lot of relationships and friendships with people that I was working with in the Hindu community in northern India anyway. And more or less, everyone that I that I was working closely with responded with, well, if you really want to understand Shalagram stones, you have to go to Nepal, um, because Nepal is where they are geographically from. And so most of the, the Shalagram traditions actually originate in the Himalayas. Um, and so their response was, if you really want to understand how this works, that's where you have to go. Uh, so I ended up applying to the Fulbright grant uh, for 2016-2017, I received the Fulbright grant and ended up going and living there for a little over a year. Right. Okay. So um, what was that like? What, when you were there, how did you interact with the people that lived there to find out more about Shaligrams? So where I started is a region called Mustang. And Mustang is, um, it's right up in the northern part of Nepal. If, if you sort of imagine a map of South Asia, right up on the border with Southern Tibet. So it's very, very deep in the central portion of the Himalayas. And in the center of Mustang is a region called the Kaligandaki River Valley. And the Kaligandaki River Valley is the river system that actually produces these specific fossils. So this is where Shalagrams are literally born. This is where they come from. And so I went up there and I actually undertook the pilgrimage um, which is a pilgrimage from, you begin in Kathmandu into, and then you sort of have to get out of Kathmandu into the foothills of the Himalayas, and then actually take the pilgrimage circuit up into the Kaligandaki region, which is a very, very high up and very long way to go. So I did that first, um, where I did the pilgrimage, and then I actually did the pilgrimage a second time, and then I actually stayed up there for nine months. Wow. Okay. And Nepal is a an area that I suppose most people might associate with Buddhism. Does that mean that, and with with these objects having their origins in this area, does that mean that they're originally uh, a Buddhist concept? Uh, they are not. Uh, they do exist in Himalayan Buddhism as a kind of ritual practice, but that's not where they come from. So one of the interesting things about Himalayan Nepal, even though we particularly in the UK and the United States and, and so on and so forth, tend to sort of associate it with Buddhism, these regions in Nepal are highly what we would call syncretic, um, which means there's more than one religious practice 
that goes on there and they blend together in a lot of really complex ways. In Mustang in particular, there are actually three religions um, that are practiced in just even this very tiny region. And it's a form of Southern Tibetan Buddhism, Hinduism, and a kind of animistic shamanic practice called Bon, uh, B-O-N. And all three of these religions are all have Shalagram ritual practices. Um, Shalagrams exist in all three of them. And practitioners from all three of these religions come onto this pilgrimage to actually get Shalagram stones. But where it actually originates is probably in pre-Vedic indigenous religion dating back more than 2000 years ago. Um, so it's, it's one of those things that I talk about a little in, in my book Dating Shalagrams is very complicated because the region of Mustang has been a region of trans-Himalayan trade for several millennia. So they originate in Mustang. They were almost certainly encountered at some point by the spread of Vedic culture in around two, two and a half thousand years ago. And then they were eventually picked up by Buddhism in the latter half of about the fifth, 500 BC or so. Mm -hmm. And that Vedic culture, what do we know about them? And I, through through knowing the, that sort of probable origin point, does that give you more information about the the reason that Shaligrams exist? The, the sort of their ritual religious value. My my presumption behind that is that Shaligram stones probably were part of an animistic ritual practice that was indigenous to the Himalayas before they encountered Vedic civilization. It's, it's almost certainly that as Vedic civilization began to spread and people began moving in and out of the Himalayas, that is what caused the Shalagrams themselves to spread. And so they, they were almost certainly used as uh, an icon of trade. Uh, they were probably spiritual to begin with. And that's, partially the explanation for why we start seeing the rise of very, very early Shalagram practices in and about northern to central India, beginning in about the second century BC. Mm -hmm. So are they their own thing or do they fit into these religions and cultures as part of a larger model of understanding the world? Yeah, no, you're actually exactly right. Um, Shalagram stones are not the only natural objects uh, that are venerated in South Asian religion. There's, uh, for, for a lot of people, they've encountered not necessarily Shalagram stones, but things like Shivalingas, uh, which is another form of naturally occurring sacred object. There's another uh, kind of stone called a Dwarka Shila, which is a form of coral, which is venerated in very much the same way. There's also a lot of veneration of various kinds of landscape features, sacred landscapes in terms of ritual practice. So the Shalagram stones are unique in their interpretive practices, but I wouldn't necessarily say that they're unique in their religious cosmology, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. so, so they, for instance, in Hinduism, they would connect to the, the gods that exist within Hinduism. For Hindus, yes. Um, so yeah, there's a number of different Shalagram interpretive practices depending on what religion is involved. So when you went over there, 
what was your sort of um worldview as a i mean as an anthropologist did you were you able to kind of keep your distance when you're uh, researching these things or when you immerse yourself in these cultures and and these objects so did you start to see the role that they played for these cultures yeah um i mean part of the practice of anthropology in general and, and most anthropologists would would talk about this in terms of their own field work there is always what we call an emic and an edict tension. So there's always a little bit of a tension of being an outsider to these cultures and these practices and becoming a participant in them and becoming involved in them. I mean, we spend years working with these communities. Um, even my direct field work in Nepal didn't technically end. I still have relationships with the people that I worked with. We still collaborate on my research today. So these tend to be lifelong involved academic relationships. So there is certainly a level of culture shock, I would say, that happens when you first arrive there. You have <laughs> no idea what's going on. And this is definitely something completely out of your wheelhouse. But over time, that tension becomes very productive. And the hope is that that tension becomes very productive in that you begin to see not just how these objects act in the world, what they mean, why people use them, but you also really come to understand what they mean for the people involved. Hmm. And in, in these cultures, do they, this isn't meant to sound condescending, but do, they do know that it's a, a, the remains of a dead sea creature. So that's actually a question I get a lot. Um, one of these days, I, I think I actually have an article coming out with the title of which is called, But What Is It Really? And that that's usually sort of the way that it gets framed outside of uh, South Asian context. And so people will sort of come up to me and say like, yeah, but it's really a fossil, right? Like they know it's that's what it really is. And what I, what I tend to say in those cases is that if you were to go up to a Shalagram practitioner and say, you know that this is a fossil, their answer to that would be yes. The difference is being a fossil and being divine are not mutually exclusive categories, hmm. particularly for people who work with Shalagram stones. So I think there's sometimes the perception that we in the Euro-American West you know, believe these to be scientific geological formations, and they over there believe them to be deities, that dichotomy actually doesn't really exist. Um, and in fact, their understanding of it is both sided. They look at it both as the geological paleontological explanation and the religious one as being two different ways of describing what the world means. Right. Yeah. Okay. In the in a previous episode of the podcast, actually, I was my guest was talking along similar lines about meaning and explanation. Um, how, like you say, they're not mutually exclusive. An object can have an explanation, but that doesn't detract from uh, a, a meaning that might not be directly connected to that. Yeah, precisely that. Cool. So, um, and, and I guess as well along those lines. Did you meet people who who understood that? Yeah, I mean, for the most part, 
when when I would be involved with either a practitioner community or with a practitioner family, they would talk about that tension quite often of understanding the geological history and fossil history of the world and that ammonite fossils are a kind of extinct cephalopod. That for them forms one particular way of making meaning out of the past. And then there is the mythography behind them. So the story of the deities and the formation of the deities via the Kali Kentucky River Valley and why the stones take on these particular forms and where they get their names is another way of making meaning out of the past. Hmm. And with when you're when you're doing this research and and you know you have these insights and from from doing your work, do you think that those concepts, that way of looking at things, is will ever become more common in the way in, in Western thinking? I can certainly say I hope so. <laughs> Do I think that's actually going to happen? I'm not sure. Um, I mean, one of the I think one of the struggles, particularly for the West, is that we have a very different and much more antagonistic kind of relationship between religion and science. So, I mean, I can particularly speak from the context of the U.S., for example, that evangelical Christianity in the United States and the way that evangelical Christianity refuses certain kinds of scientific inquiry creates this really politically contentious argument that pits religion and science on opposite sides of one another. In the world of the Shalagram Stone, these two things are not at odds with one another. They're, they're two methods of making meaning. They're two methods of understanding what the world is and understanding our place in it. So in a big way, if, if that's something that we really want to see happen here, we really could take a page from South Asia in this case and begin to look at how our religion and science, not two sides at war, but rather two different kinds of understanding who we are and what these things are. Mm, yeah, definitely. So when you were looking for shallygrams, how did that work? Or what was a, what was a, a general day like when you were in this valley looking for these objects? I mean, it's actually pretty incredible. It, it's, it's one of those things, if you had told my 12-year-old self that I was going to be spending my days up in the high Himalayas walking through a river looking for fossils, I, I probably would have laughed at you. But that's, in fact, exactly what it is. Um, the Kaligandaki River Valley is at about 4,200 meters. Uh, so it's quite, quite high in the high Himalayas. The water is very cold, uh, but thankfully it's reasonably shallow. And the river itself is actually part of a glacial melt. So the glacial melt is coming out of the Southern Tibetan Plateau. The actual fossil bed itself is in the Southern Tibetan Plateau. And what happens is that these fossils break out, end up in the flow of the river, and then they tumble down in the river for you know another couple of thousand years and get nice and smooth and shiny and very pretty. So to find them, you basically need to plan that you're going to go and hang out in a very cold glacial river for several hours, um, picking through sands and sediments until one of them, 
the way that practitioners talk about it is that one of them will be born out of the river for you. Right. Okay. And so do you remember the first one that you found? I do, actually. Um, <laughs> though, ironically enough, the very first shellgram I ever found was not in the river. Um, the, the very first one I found was actually on a mountainside that I presume it was either dropped or ended up washed up there somehow. Uh, but I was on the road and it was actually sitting on the side of the road. Wow. Okay. So does that have any significance or did, because it's not found in the river, it's found somewhere else. Is it, that doesn't affect it being a shallogram? No. Um, so part of the whole process of becoming shallogram, um, and this is sort of, I think, an important distinction is that not all ammonite fossils are shallogram stones. Only ammonite fossils that have undergone the very specific geological processes of the Kaligandaki River and then are born out of that river are shallogram, are considered to be shallogram. Everything else is an ammonite fossil. So what imbues them with their divinity, what, what imbues them with their particular special characteristics is the process of the landscape that creates them more than just being the object themselves. So once they've undergone that process, once they have been born as shalagram, they are shalagram forever. Mm, and do they have, is there someone that verifies them? There are. Uh, depending on what religious tradition you come from, there are ritual specialists usually that practitioners then go to to have their shalagram stones read. Um, and what I mean by that is to actually have the deity who is present identified by name. And mm. Usually those ritual practitioners are either elderly sadhus, which is a term for Hindu ascetics, um, or they're temple specialists back in their hometowns or home villages. And that's usually how that works. Hmm. Okay. And with, with that area having these different spiritual traditions, would arguments ever break out? Would, would you go to one person and then they, and they'd give you like different explanations about the shallogram i mean i guess going back to what we were talking about before that's not super important but i'm i'm just curious as to that if you if you found a shallogram do you just take it to the to the first person you can to get it sort of verified and then that's it or can it further down the line can someone else look at it and say well it's this as well or is it kind of set once you've sort of taken it to somebody Usually that's so where that ten there is a bit of a tension, I should say, but where that tension exists is different shalagram traditions interpret the characteristics slightly differently. But within any particular tradition, if I went to, for example, um, a Shaiva Hindu ritual specialist, and then I went to a different Shaiva Hindu ritual specialist, they would almost certainly tell me the same thing. There, there is a standardized way of reading the Shalagram stone within each tradition. But a Vaishnava or a Buddhist might interpret it slightly differently, if that makes sense. Um, so in, in the Hindu tradition, how do they identify the god that's connected to the, to the Shalagram? So it actually took me probably close to between five and seven years to actually learn how to do this myself. Um, it takes a long time to, to learn these traditions. 
But the short, short version of it is there are roughly six characteristics that they're looking at. Um, and these six characteristics have to do with things like the shape of the stone, the color of the stone, the number of spiral markings it has, which is called a chakra, the number of vadana it has, which is a term meaning mouth, which is an opening somewhere in the stone. And what they what they do is each one of these six characteristics exists on a kind of spectrum. And once you pinpoint what the shalagram you have in your hand is in terms of these six characteristics tells you what deity is there. Hmm. So does that mean that there can be like a low scoring shalagram and then a, a high scoring one, like a mega, a mega shalagram? <laughs> uh, not not in that way. Um, so there are basically they look at any shalagram that is shalagram is a shalagram. Like they are all equal on a level ritual playing field. There are different deities that people tend to seek out, um, which is not unusual. If there is a specific deity they want for their household, or there's a specific deity that they're looking for for a temple, that's probably, I would say, more common than necessarily ranking them from best to worst. Usually for most people, any shalagram is a great shalagram, as long as it's not broken. Right, okay, yeah. I I'm sorry for that question. It's such a sort of Western <laughs> uh, question, but I, I just, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking of sort of shallogram top trumps or something. Where, yeah. <laughs> but no, that's fascinating. So you talk about you went on the pilgrimages up to, up to that area. Um, mm-hmm. uh, what sort of people did you meet along the way? All kinds of people. So, I mean, the people that I lived with were the local Mustangis, um, obviously. So the... The ethnic group that lives in the region that I was specifically living in are called the Thakali. Um, and they are a Nepali ethnicity. They speak largely a mix of Nepali and Tibetan. But pilgrims could be from just about anywhere. They could be from other areas of Nepal. A lot of them were coming from India. And I mean, all over India, North, Central, South India. And then there were a lot of people who were coming from the diaspora. So. These were shalagram practitioners who are coming from the UK, who are coming from Australia, who are coming from the United States. And these are second and third generation Hindu and Buddhist families who in a big way are trying to recapture those ritual practices that they grew up with or that their family did at one point in time. But it's really frustrating for a lot of them. Uh, Going on Himalayan pilgrimage is exceptionally difficult. It's exceptionally expensive. And getting enough money and getting enough backing to be able to spend enough time in the Kaligandaki to get the Shalagram stones that you want for your family is becoming more and more difficult. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I suppose with them only coming from that one place as, as well, it's not, yeah. it's not as though there are other river valleys where you can find them. No, it's the Kaligandaki or nothing. <laughs> Well, that's good, I guess. I mean, it would be easy to to um, come up with some wrinkle it, to allow them to be found in other places, but I, it's good that they're they're sticking to that that concept. It's not it's not something that's easily adapted just to meet modern needs. I mean, there there are some growing issues 
more and more. So the region of Mustang is very politically contentious. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a restricted area. You have to have government permissions from the Nepali government to even go there. You're even when you do have those permits and permissions, you're limited in the amount of time you're allowed to spend up there. I lucked out, obviously, because I had my Fulbright pass that I was actually allowed to stay there for an extensive period of time since I was working there. But for the vast majority of pilgrims who come to Mustang, they're actually limited in visiting Mustang for five days or less. And you're not even allowed to access Upper Mustang, which is completely closed off. So in yeah in that respect it's the harder and harder it gets for people to actually travel there the response has been that shalagram stones are now being bought and sold so there are people who go up get baskets and baskets full of these stones drive them out of the himalayas and then sell them right okay that's an that's an interesting thing so is part of the value of these objects in in the person finding them there is And I guess that's why there is the pilgrimage, right? And that's part of where a lot of people's frustration is coming from, is that pilgrims will very commonly say that when you go out into the river and you're praying and you're meditating out in the river, the river is going to speak to you by the shalagrams that appear. So there Mm. is supposed to be this divine connection that you are going to be in communication with the divine based on the shalagrams that come to you. Um, and that's very much how people talk about it, is that if a shalagram comes to you, it is because the shalagram intended to come to you. It was by its own choice. So being faced with the prospect of never being able to go on pilgrimage, and then the only way that they can actually get a shalagram stone or a genuine shalagram stone is to buy one, becomes really contentious particularly for Hindus who have a karmic ban on buying and selling sacred objects. So it becomes a sort of spiritual paradox of if I pay money for this shalagram stone, I am incurring karmic debt and karmic sin. But if I don't, I will never have a shalagram stone at all and the ritual practice will die. Right, yeah. Yeah, it is a bit of a quandary. but So, I mean... When you came back to America, and when you've done fossil hunting in out of outside of this context, is it is it hard to get out of the mindset, the shallowgram mindset? <laughs> Sometimes, yes. Um, I think the big one is so I actually gave a three day shallowgram workshop in uh, Stoke on Trent in the UK a couple oh, wow. of years ago, and so for the the diaspora Hindu community uh, in the UK, and it was it was a wonderful experience, and I really enjoyed doing it. But of course, one of the things that people then brought up is like, oh, you know, the coast of the UK has ammonite beds and and you can also do fossil prospecting here. And so I was like, oh, that sounds great. I I, I really love to do that. But I I can't get over the mental block I have about breaking the stone. Right, yeah. Because that is a huge, huge no-no in shallogram stones. Like you absolutely do not break a shallogram for any reason ever. And so going out into these UK fossil beds, of course, which are not shalagram, these are just ammonite fossils, and people taking out hammers and breaking them open, I'm like, oh, oh, yeah, is, is that okay? Yeah, I mean, it must be, it must be hard to, to get back into 
a regular way of thinking about about fossil hunting when you've had this experience? I think one of the real ironies behind it is, um, I think this is about two years ago now, I actually had a brief consultation with uh, the Oxford Museum of Natural History. And the question, because the question they sent me was whether or not they, within their fossil ammonite collections, had shallogram stones. They had encountered my work through one of the paleontologists that I'd worked with there on identifying the actual ammonite species. And as it turns out, I got a catalog of their ammonite collection along with certain sets of photographs, and they do, in fact, have very old shallograms in their museum collection. Wow. So what happens to them? Are they, are they something that could, could go back? Um, will they always be in that collection, or is it, is it something that's just a new piece of information for that collection? Or, or given, given, their, given that about their status, could that mean that they get taken back to Nepal or it's it's unlikely that they would be sent back um Mm. even most Hindus and Buddhists would not necessarily say that you have to send them back what they would tend to say and, and this is sort of the the report that I gave them is that if they ever wanted to display them there are certain religious restrictions on the way that chalagram stones are publicly displayed and the way that they're cared for if they are publicly displayed so I think what the museum was sort of trying to wrestle with was this idea of having an important religious cultural object that in the Western mindset is a rock. So for them, it's like, no, this is just part of our fossil collection. It's not a part of our you know, cultural collection. And I'm the one having to stand there and say, actually, it is. It is a part of your cultural collection. Mm. And. Are there parallels in other cultures in regards to shallograms? I'm thinking in in Europe there is there is a bit of a tradition in terms of um, colloquial terms for fossils. So I know that in in North Yorkshire, ammonites are sometimes called snake stones, and there's a mm-hmm. you know, there's a, there's a legend of a, of a saint turning the snakes into stone and. Uh, other, other fossils are called things like devil's toenails and and things like that. And um, you know, obviously, that's not not the same. But in in your work, do you do you find that there are similar traditions in other places around the world? There are actually um, not. I would say not quite to the extent, particularly over the millennia of time that chalgram stones have enjoyed. But there certainly are what we would call other fossil folklores. So one of the, a couple of the ones that I talk about is um, there are sacred ammonites among indigenous peoples in the United States, which are called Iniskim, or other times termed buffalo stones. So these were types of ammonites that were also found and believed to have various kinds of cosmological powers and abilities, particularly having to do with the migration of animals. There's I, I think there's all kinds of stories from all over the world, even things like fossil mammoths being the the foundation for the Greek story of the Cyclops um, mm-hmm. and ancient peoples finding various different kinds of fossils and reading certain kinds of fantastical creatures into them. Um, I think there's even, uh, there are some medievalists who might argue that dragons in medieval Europe were actually fossil dinosaurs. Hmm. I've thought about that. The only thing I would say is that isn't it? It's quite rare to find a dinosaur skeleton in such a way that you can sort of 
understand what it looked like. Like often there'll be bone beds of, sure. and so yeah, I don't know. I mean, this I have to admit, I I I'm not a fan of rational explanations for dragons because I, I love dragons and I just want them to exist. Um, <laughs> That's <laughs> but, totally but, fair. So it probably is right, but I I'll always go to the point. Well, how did they find enough bones to put it all together to to put it into a dragon shape? So. But hey, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's also just possible that it's they're finding things like claws and teeth. Yeah. And so that's whether or not the, the claws and teeth came first or the dragon came first, it became an explanation of, well, this is clearly evidence that dragons once existed. Look at the size of these claws and teeth. Hmm. No, absolutely. And uh, along those lines, with you with you working and researching in Nepal and in the Himalayas, going back to fantastical creatures, <laughs> it would be remiss of me not to ask you about the Yeti. Um, oh, of course. So, so when you were over there, did people talk about that that creature? Yes, but not in the way that we would talk about it here. Um, right. I mean, one of the interesting things, so I, I wrote an article a while back called Yeti or Not, Here We Come, um, also because I'm a dork and like to title things like that. <laughs> That's but, cool. I, I love that. <laughs> but it was one of those things like up in the high Himalayas, uh, stories of the Yeti are reasonably commonplace and so much so that Yeti is also a kind of a brand. Like there's Yeti Airlines in Nepal, there's Yeti Hotels, there, you know, Yeti Tchotchkes, like you can sort of get Yeti whatever you want. The way that Nepalis themselves, particularly um, Himalayan Mustangis, talk about Yeti, I ended up thinking was very, very fascinating. Because as far as most of them understood, the Yeti was a Western story, hmm. not a story that came from them. So... A lot of times I actually, I, I met a couple of people up there when we were sitting, drinking our tea in the evening, would say things like, so what's a Yeti? And I remember, of course, in, in then in my somewhat rudimentary Nepali, having to try and be like, oh, well, it's this, you know, abominable snowman and you know, this, this giant ape creature that, you know, they think lives in the Himalayas. And... For most of them, it was either a sort of, why would you think that exists here? And for others, it was more like a, if that's what you come to the Himalayas to see, we'll go find it. Right, okay. So does that mean that it can have a material existence? This is, I think, one of the sort of ironic things about stories like the Yeti is it has taken on a material existence because of how powerful the stories are. Um, so it's not uncommon now, particularly in the high Himalayas, for Buddhist or Bon monasteries to have various kind of Yeti artifacts. And they're things like bits of hair or bits of scalp or finger bones or whatever it happens to be. And Oftentimes, Himalayan guides, if, if you go up there and say, like, oh, I want to, you know, I want to see the Yeti or I want to see stuff about the Yeti, this is sort of where they'll take you. Um, and these these monasteries will have stories about encountering Yetis, about seeing these footprints. 
And you can kind of do this tour of the Himalayas in the footprints of the Yeti, if I can use that metaphor. It's just not a real Yeti. Okay. It's really interesting. It reminds me, I read a, an article on a blog recently. It was a blog by a, a ghost hunter here in the UK. And her group had done an a investigation at this pub. And later on, they got a, a call from the landlady calling them again, really frightened because there was activity at this pub. But she confessed that when they'd been around for the, the first time, they'd created a story of who the pub was haunted by <laughs> to sell a reputation for you know, for ghost hunters to kind of come to the pub and stay overnight and, and as an income generator. Sure. But then it turned out that after they'd done that, stuff started happening. They'd created this story of this ghost and then that story sort of comes to life. And and what you're talking about, it's, it's interesting how it's like, it's almost like that field of dreams kind of thing where if you build it, it will come like, you know, right, they will <laughs> that come. seems to be that kind of thing seems to pop up more and more in as I read about the, the supernatural and, and, and sort of its its nature that that concept seems to come up more and more. I mean, what about things like ghosts in, in Nepal? Are, are they something that is part of the, the spiritual makeup of those cultures? In the Himalayas, the answer is sort of. Um... The, the way that Hinduism, Bon, and Buddhism blend um, and at this particular area is that there's a very, very strong sense of sort of the spiritual existence of the world. And, and what I mean by that is there is, for example, a personification of the high Himalayan wind, which is called the Dakini. Um, and the Dakini is a, a sort of vicious, ferocious female wind spirit who, if not treated with certain kinds of respect, can kill you and will kill your livestock and will destroy your house. There's also in Tibetan Buddhism, the deity, the deity is called the Sinmo, which roughly translates to demon. Not in a Judeo-Christian sense, but more or less. And the way that you deal with spirits and the way that you deal with ghosts in in this particular context actually is with things like sacred stones and sacred uh, architecture. So where people build their houses, where they build temples, where they build stupas, um, which sometimes contain graves within them and sometimes don't, are actually all arranged across the landscape with the idea that this is what controls the movement of spirits. And in Bonn, Shalgram stones actually do that. Right, okay. So that's sort of like, um, like, like a sort of psychogeography, building structures in certain places for that for that purpose, for the controlling of spirits and things like that. Exactly. Um, like one of the most common things that I saw up in the region is, so it's very common to build a stupa at a crossroads. So any place where more than one path crosses, you you build a stupa. And then inside of that stupa, very commonly they would play shalagram stones. Um, and the idea of that is that the Shalagram stone would prevent bad spirits from crossing through the crossroads at dangerous times. Right. That's interesting. I mean, I, I know in the West, there's a tradition of burying uh, criminals at, at crossroads. So their spirits are, can never find their way home. 
Hmm. Right. <laughs> Thankfully, in this case, it has more to do with, um, it's more of a protective measure. Yeah. They'll also do it in terms of redirecting the Dakini. So if you want to direct this sort of dangerous, vicious wind away from your house, the Shalagram Stone can do that. They also tend to place them inside ossuaries. So wherever, so people are buried above ground um, in the Himalayas. And what you would do is when they're buried inside of an ossuary stupa, the opening to that stupa would have a Shalagram Stone placed in it to prevent bad spirits from the outside of getting into your ancestors. Right. Wow. So how many shallograms do you have at your home? <laughs> how many do I have? So I keep um, my my own personal collection is six. Um, there are six specific ones that I have. And basically, they're the shallogram stones. They, they are mine. They are attached to me. Uh, I take care of them. They take care of me. And they're also the shallograms I use, for example, when I do talks about shallogram stones, when I teach. So if I'm conducting a class where we talk about shallograms, they come with me. I also actually have a collection of fake shallograms, um, which is growing somewhat exponentially as of late. So I, I have my real ones, which are six of them. Um, and then I have my, my growing fake collection. Wow. Are they replicas of real ones? Or are they to trick people so you can do a test, see if people can detect the real one? <laughs> they're, they're actually, they're fakes um, meant to trick people into buying them. Right. So they, there are very unscrupulous sellers. So back from when I talked about that, there are sellers who, instead of actually going to the Himalayas and getting shallogram stones to sell, will actually just mold them. They will, they will carve or fake them. And very commonly, the shallogram stones can sell for upwards of $500 to $700 US. Wow. So will you be heading back to Nepal? Is your, is your research ongoing? It is. Uh, my hope actually was to go back this summer and then the pandemic happened. <laughs> so that's not happening. My hope is to actually go back next summer. I want to spend a couple of more months up there. Um, because now Nepal has decided to build the very first Shalagram Museum, uh, which is in a town called Baglan. And obviously, I figure I have to go and at least see that. But I do want to spend at least a couple of more months back up in the pilgrimage circuit um, as I'm now trying to get together my second manuscript. Earlier on, you were, you were talking about how there weren't any books written on Shalagrams. Is that, is that something you're working on? Yes. So my first book, uh, which actually just came out this last October, is my ethnography. So it's my anthropological write-up um, talking about the culture of Shalagram stones and the pilgrimage and, and so on and so forth. The second book that I'm currently trying to find a publisher for is actually a handbook about the interpretive practice. So how Shalagram stones are actually read. Wow. Those both sound excellent. It's it's great that um, they'll finally be a resource for, for people to go to. <laughs> that's, I mean, and that's really the impetus behind this is this is the book that the people that I work with have mostly been asking for is, you know, is there a book about the oral interpretive tradition? Is there a book that explains how this works? And the short answer is right now there isn't. Um, 
they're the only two works that do currently exist on this topic are compilations of scripture. Um, so they're not actual descriptions about how the interpretation works. They're theological descriptions of the background behind the interpretation. So the problem is, is that it's very hard to get a publisher who wants to publish as many images as I have in this. Mm. Because it doesn't work without pictures. Of course. No, no. They, they're very visual items. Because <laughs> I can describe how any one particular Shalagram stone looks, but sort of imagine, like, describe an ammonite. Yeah. Now describe a different ammonite. <laughs> well, no, what you want to do is to just show you a picture of what it looks like. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it must be hard to remember a time when, when Shalagrams weren't a part of your life. If you could compare yourself now with with the research that you've done and to yourself before this have you changed how have shallograms changed your life yeah i would definitely say if so if i were i've been doing this work now since uh, 2011 uh 2012 was my first stint of actual field work when i encountered the shallogram stones themselves the person who went on that first project, I would say, is a very different person than the one who came out of it. In, I would just say, in so many different ways that it challenged the way that I understood what meaning was. It challenged the way I understood what knowledge was. And in a lot of ways, coming from the background that I came from, it really shifted what I came to understand as being a relationship to the divine. Uh, because I come from, myself personally, I come from an evangelical Christian background, though I myself am an atheist. But my religious training is in Christianity. So coming to understand Shalagram practice and the way in which these three different religions syncretize all at once to become this community of practitioners was something that really fundamentally shook what I understood at the time to be spirituality. Mm, I, I can imagine. Something I find is that some, sometimes with organized religions, it can give the sense of absolutes. But if you examine spiritual traditions, they're very adaptable. Very, um, very much so. Which is good. I, I like that. It's it's really interesting. But yeah, no, I can I can completely see how it had that effect on you. And just being going from living in Nepal for a while and then coming home, did it affect how you saw your home in America and, and the landscapes there as well? Did you find yourself sort of imagining the river spirits in where you live in America and river spirits? birthing similar items i mean that that kind of process i i definitely think i mean one of the sort of ironies of my particular field work is so i left for my longest stint of field work just over a year um in 2016 and then the election of donald trump happened right after that so i wasn't actually even in the country when that happened i didn't come back for quite a while when i did come back it I think it really made me think about how we interact with the land, how we interact with the world around us in ways that I really hadn't thought about before. Um, and that 
it was sort of interesting being in a place like the high Himalayas where the way that people think and the things that they think about were so completely different and completely unrelated to the world that I came from, it was actually a little bit jarring to come home where it's like, oh, now I have to, now I have to think back in this way again. And I have hmm. to think about these things again. And I haven't. Well, I can definitely see how, how that would be the case and how it would be jarring like that. But I think the nice thing is that, so I did come home with Shalgram stones myself, obviously. I, I have my collection here. And they really do kind of grow on you. Um, <laughs> it's It's been interesting to sort of have them here at home or traveling back and forth with me to talks or to my office um, on the college campus. That they do facilitate relationships and exchange and talking to people in a way I had never imagined an object could do. So I think one of the really big shifts for me is truly starting to see them as their own agents, um, as having their own actions and their own intent and their own will. And that's not something I think we're generally used to doing in the West. Mm, no, no, definitely not. Well, Holly, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Yes, thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, you're very welcome. If people want to find out more about you and your work and Shaligrams, how best do they do that? <laughs> so uh, the book came out uh, in October. It's called Shaligram Pilgrimage in the Nepal Himalayas. Uh, you can order it from Amazon or from the publisher. You can also certainly come and visit me on my blog, which is peregrinationblog.com where I talk about the ethnography of Shalgrams reasonably extensively. And if you just want to sort of listen to me talk about everything else, you can, of course, follow me on Twitter. Excellent. Well, I'll make sure to put all that information in the show notes. Thank you. Not at all. Thank you, Holly. Thank you so much. I think the Shalgrams were the perfect sort of subject to follow on from the last episode with Stephanie where the relationship between meaning and explanation was first discussed in detail in the context of understanding the supernatural. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Holly. Her excellent blog is well worth a look if you did. She also very kindly provided a link to her article, Yeti or Not, Here I Come, which you can find in the show notes for this episode. As always, Please consider rating and reviewing the podcast wherever you listen, as it really helps it to grow and find new listeners. You can find some other sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod and on all good podcast platforms. And you can now also donate to the podcast via Ko-fi. If you'd like to email me here at SphereHQ, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Some Other Sphere will be back soon with a new episode. Until then, be safe and well, and thank you very much for listening. <laughs>